How will you face your death? Will you face it with hope for your future? Now, perhaps you think to yourself, but I, I'm, I'm so young. I, I have time in front of me. I, what do I need to be thinking about my, my death for? Well, death comes for us all according to the Lord's timing and not our own. So each day, we should be prepared to die. And so we must live as those prepared to die. So how will you face your death? Will you face your death with hope for the future? This morning, we have the privilege of of looking at a passage in which there are two deaths. That's right, we have a, a privilege of looking at a passage in which there are two deaths. And one of the things that we see in this passage is that these men who die, Jacob and Joseph, they look forward to the future in faith. They look forward to the future, trusting in the promises of God. Even with death close at hand, They believed, Jacob and Joseph believed, that God would give his people the land that he promised. God had made promises to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob that God would give his people a place and a land. And these men are trusting God as they die. We're in this last section of the book of Genesis. And here we see that though these men die, God's promises do not. They're active and alive, and God is active and at work. Beloved, here's the sermon in a sentence. Death cannot bury God's promises to bring you home. So live in peace and die in hope. Death cannot bury God's promises to bring you home. So live in peace and die in hope. This is what we're going to think about together this morning from Genesis 49, beginning there in verse 28 to the end of the book, chapter 50, verse 26. We'll unpack this text before us in three sections under three headings. There should be a full outline provided there in the bulletin that may help you to follow along. But let's begin with our first point, die in hope. Follow along now as I read Genesis 49, beginning there in verse 28, and we'll read into chapter 50 and to verse 14. Follow along, Genesis 49, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only the children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. 
And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place after he had buried his father. Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. You'll notice that just before our passage, Jacob has just finished blessing his sons, saying something of his last words to them, and then he turns to this request. These verses that we just read, Genesis 49, verse 28 to 50, verse 14, are tied together by one word, one place, and one hope. The one word is buried. It's used more than 10 times in these verses. Jacob prepares for his burial. Joseph asks to bury his father. And Pharaoh gives them permission to bury Jacob. Then Jacob is finally buried. That's the one word, buried. The one place is that burial ground there in Canaan, where all of the patriarchs were buried before Jacob. It's mentioned actually multiple times in our passage. In the beginning of verses 29 to 32, mentioned a couple of times there, chapter 49. And then yet again, at the end of these verses in Genesis chapter 50, verse 13. The mention of the burial ground really forms the bookends of the verses that we just read. That's the one place, that burial ground in Canaan. But the one hope that Jacob has is that God will keep his promises to give his people the land that Jacob is to be buried in. Jacob is not dying in grief. He's dying in hope. Verses 28 to 33, they recount Jacob's command. And it's quite simply this. Bury me in Canaan. If he wrote a country song these days, it'd be called Bury Me in Canaan. Well, after Jacob's blessing of his sons, he gives this command. He gives this command to all of them. He knows he's going to die. You see it there in his words, verse 29. I'm to be gathered to my people. And of course, those words are repeated when in fact he does die in verse 33. Do you see them there, verse 33? We read that he was gathered to his people. Do you realize that this is actually what happens at death? You are gathered to your people. Not your people physically necessarily, but your people spiritually. I mean, Jacob's body isn't yet in the cave in Canaan in verse 33. But you see there, we're told that he was gathered to his people. The Bible teaches us that there are only two kinds of people in this world. The righteous and the wicked. And this distinction between the righteous and the wicked holds among men both in and after death. In other words, there are God's people and there are not God's people. There are those who trusted God and his promises of salvation and those who rejected God and his promises of salvation. The Bible teaches us that the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Think of the thief on the cross when he placed his faith in Jesus there. And he asked Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Do you remember what Jesus said? In Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus said, Truly, it is certain, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's where the righteous go, to be with God and his people. But what about those who are not God's people? The Bible teaches us that the souls of the wicked shall at their death be cast into the torments of hell and their bodies lie in their graves till the resurrection and judgment of the great day. Who will you be gathered to when you die? Will you be gathered to those who have received Jesus or those who have rejected Jesus? Jacob knows that he will be gathered to the people who have trusted God and his promises. Jacob dies in hope because he knows that 
he will be gathered to God's people. But why Canaan? Why not take a cave in Egypt? Why not a grand pyramid? Why make your family pull out a royal chariot and lug your corpse all the way back to Canaan? Because Jacob believed that God would keep his promises. God promised his grandfather Abraham, his father Isaac, and God promised Jacob that his descendants would be given the land of Canaan as a gift. Okay, so what, right? I mean, does that really mean you need to be buried in Canaan? No. So think about what Jacob is believing and actually trying to pass on to his offspring, to his family, his descendants. Jacob would only make this request if he believed that God would raise him from the dead. And that when he got up from the dead, his feet would be in the land of Canaan. The land that God promised to him. But he never got to enjoy in full in his life. He never got to possess it in full. Jacob wanted to see the fulfillment of God's promise with his resurrected eyes. Jacob wants to be in that land. And in the words of Hebrews chapter 13, verse, uh, verse 11, sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, that he only saw and greeted from afar. You can hear Jacob's longing for that land in the words of verse 31 when he says, Abraham and Sarah were buried there. Isaac and Rebekah were buried there. I buried my wife Leah there. Jacob, he hopes not in himself, but in his God. Jacob knew that he belonged body and soul to his faithful God. I mean, just look at how he dies in verse 33. I mean, isn't it amazing? He, he settles himself into bed. He breathes his last and enters into glory. Jacob had committed himself and his hopes to God in life, and he committed himself and his hopes to God in death. Do you see how Jacob has hope beyond his death? Not only for his soul, but also for his body. Beloved, when the Lord Jesus returns on the last day, he will raise you up and give you a glorified body and your feet will rest upon the earth. You will not be floating on a cloud holding a golden zither. You will be living and walking and worshiping God in a glorified body which can never feel disease or decay or death ever again. The only way you can die in hope is if you live with this hope because of Jesus. Fathers, and dare I say it, fellow patriarchs among us this morning, you have a special responsibility to prepare your family for your death. That's what Jacob does in these verses. Jacob prepares his family for his death by passing on to his children his hope in the promises of God. Now, fathers, you cannot make your children believe the promises of God. That is a work of the Holy Spirit, to give them the gift of faith. But you can, and you should, tangibly introduce them to your belief in the promises of God. Teach and tell your beloved bride and your growing brood that you believe that one day you will be gathered to God's people. Teach and tell your beloved bride and your growing brood that you believe Jesus really is the resurrection and the life. Teach and tell them that whoever believes in Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live, and that everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die, but be gathered to Jesus' people. Jacob, he not only proclaimed his hope in death to his family, but he wanted them to tangibly experience his hope in the promises of God. You see verses 1 to 14 of chapter 50? They're an exercise in hope. They are a foretaste of the fulfillment of God's promises, even in the midst of grief. Look over the first 14 verses of Genesis 50. What do you see? You see Joseph grieving the death of his father. You see Joseph going to Pharaoh and asking Pharaoh if he would let God's people go and bury his father. Do you see what's happening here? Do you understand what's happening here? Israel is practicing the exodus that's going to come. 
Way back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and be servants there. In other words, they'll be slaves. God said, They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Jacob's grandfather Abraham and father Isaac passed these promises on to him. Jacob knew these promises of God. Jacob, in his command to be buried in Canaan, was layering in Israel's history a dry run of the exodus from Egypt that was to come. Moses' first audience, the audience who had first received this book of Genesis, those who actually participated in the exodus and were making their way through the wilderness would have recognized this as they heard this story. This exodus in verses 1 to 14 follows all the proper protocols. There's the appropriate weeping and the crying out and the passage of time following Jacob's death. Let me just encourage you in light of Joseph's own weeping, love of his father. Love your family in such a way that it's a grief to give them up. That's what we see in verse 1, don't we? Joseph, as he weeps over his father. We should love not just our physical family in this way, but our spiritual family too. Observe too that there is the careful care for Israel's body. As Joseph instructs his servants to prepare Jacob's body there in verse 2. Christians and the ancient people of God have always recognized the importance of treating the body with dignity and care. God gave us these bodies. They're going to be resurrected and glorified. They ought not be mistreated in this life or after death. Joseph went to Pharaoh and he humbly asked for permission to bury his father. Now, unlike the future Pharaoh who would forget Joseph, this Pharaoh willingly lets God's people go. Do you notice who went with Joseph in these verses? It was a a mixed multitude who went to Canaan with Joseph. The people of Israel went out, but so did many Egyptians. And actually, when you come to read the book of Exodus, one of the things you'll see is that a very great company left Egypt, and among them were some Egyptians too. It was a mixed multitude, just like this. And from this, and from their joining in with this grief, and from Romans chapter 12, verse 15, we we learn that we should weep with those who weep. As we've been studying on Wednesday nights, Jesus wept at Lazarus too. It was appropriate for us to grieve the loss of loved ones. It's important for us to attend both the funerals of physical and spiritual family members. In verses 10 and 11, do you notice we're we're told something twice? We're told that they went beyond the Jordan. In verse 11, we're told that the the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, were watching this funeral procession, and they were mourning, watching the mourning. In verse 13, we're told that Israel was carried into Canaan, and then he was buried in Canaan. We're given these details, this repetition, that they're in the land, they're in the land, so that we know that Israel's corporate head, Jacob, that's who he was as the patriarch of the family. He's the corporate head of the family. We're given these details so that we know that Israel's corporate head made it back to Canaan. Now, beloved, think about it. The head always leads the way for the body. And the fact that Israel's corporate head, Jacob, who is himself named Israel, made it back to Canaan, would give the body of Israel, Jacob's descendants, even those who were enslaved in Egypt, would give them hope that one day they would make it back to Canaan according to God's promise. They would follow their head there. And think about the Lord Jesus Christ, our corporate head, we, his body, the church. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He says this, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, the song we just sang, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you understand what the writer of the Hebrews is saying to Christians? Jesus has gone ahead of us into glory as a forerunner. And that means we as his body are going to follow him there. He's paved the way for us. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus has entered into glory. Jesus has gone before us and we his body will one day follow him, our head, into glory. Oh, Christian, hope in God. Even in the face of death, you can hope in God because our God is a God who keeps his promises. 
He fulfilled his promises to Israel and his sons by giving them the land that he promised. After the Exodus, the people of Israel, they they wander through the wilderness and they eventually conquered Canaan, the land of Canaan, that God gave to them as a gift. And you know what we're told in the book of Joshua? In the words of Joshua 21, verses 43 and 45, we're told this, Thus the Lord Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord Yahweh had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Christian, all of God's promises to you are going to come to pass. We have a God who keeps his word. Our God will not fail. Death cannot bury God's promises to bring you home. So you can die in hope. And you can live in peace. That's what we learn from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. This is our second point, live in peace. Follow along as I read Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is a a moving stretch of verses, and it's plunked down right in the middle of two death narratives. And as a reader, you, you may wonder, how does this scene connect to the two scenes about death? Here's how it connects. Like Jacob, Joseph, he hopes and plans in the promises of God. He believes that his personal story and life experience is embedded in the bigger story that God is working out. Because this is true, Joseph does not have to retaliate or seek revenge. Rather, he can live in peace with his brothers precisely because he trusts God's promises and plans, that God is working them out. I mean, just look a little closer at these verses. In verses 15 to 18, we, we get the brothers' confession. Uh, remember, remember something about the brothers, right? They, they hated Joseph. They, they hated Joseph. Back in Genesis chapter 37, where the story between Joseph and the brothers began, chapter 37, verse 4, we're told that they couldn't even speak a word of peace to him. They they couldn't make their way through the house being kind to him in any way. Have you ever lived in a household like that? Where the hate is so thick that a kind word cannot even get out through the air. I mean, if, if that's you, If a kind word, if a a word of peace can't get even out of your mouth, then you need to repent of your hatred and anger. It's true. The, The other person might have sinned and sinned against you. But through your hatred and anger, you're sinning too. You you might not be able to do anything about the other person's sin. But by the grace and help of the Holy Spirit, you can do something about your sin. And you should. You should be deeply concerned about your hatred and anger. It is a grievous sin against God. And if you allow your hatred and anger to fester, it will lead you to sin grievously against the one you hate and are angry with. That's what happened with Joseph's brothers. They couldn't speak peace to him, and then they plotted to kill him. Now, they they stopped short of that plan, and they decided to make a little money off of him. So they sold him into slavery. That's the evil that they did to him. Now, notice their fear there in verse 15. 
So long as Jacob, their father, was alive, they felt that he was kind of protecting them. But now that Jacob was dead, they thought that Joseph might come after them. I mean, Joseph had great authority in Egypt, and at his mere command, he could summon the chariots of Pharaoh. The brothers actually believed the worst of Joseph rather than the best. They're acting in fear, not in faith. And just recognize this about fear. It's, it's suspicious. Fear suspicious. And, and fear de- depends upon schemes. That's what they're doing here. It, it depends upon a scheme rather than the sovereign God and really straightforward speech. I mean, they don't go and speak to Joseph directly at first. No, instead in verse 16, they send a message to Joseph under the guise that they're fulfilling their father's dying wish. I mean, maybe they are. Maybe they are fulfilling their father's dying wish. We don't really know. Maybe Jacob actually confronted the brothers with their sin. Maybe Jacob told them, you need to own up to your sin. You need to confess it and you need to seek Joseph's forgiveness. And, and sometimes it takes that kind of direct instruction, right, to help someone take the steps toward repentance and reconciliation. But whatever the case may be, they take these steps because at the end of the day, they know they need forgiveness and pardon from Joseph. I mean, in verse 17, they beg for Joseph's forgiveness. And notice the words they use. They're powerful words. Forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Those are potent words, aren't they? Transgression, sin, and evil. For all of the failings for how these brothers are actually approaching this confession, at least they're being honest about what they have done. They have done evil. They have sinned. They have transgressed God's law. Do you, do you talk like this about your transgressions? But do you, do you honestly name it as evil and wickedness and sin in the sight of God? Or do you put lipstick on the pig of sin and call it a mistake? An accident, an error, a lapse in judgment. You are not ready to be done with sin until you are done calling it by the wrong name. Maybe the first step of repentance, of turning away from your sin, is being honest with God, with yourself and others about it. The brothers, they they go on to appeal to Joseph's faith in God. Do you see that there? And their love for his father at the end of verse 17. And notice that they strike a chord with Joseph. Because he at once breaks down weeping. Now we're not told why Joseph is weeping. Maybe it's because he's disappointed that his brothers don't trust him. He's done a lot of good to them. They should trust him. But maybe it's precisely because of what the brothers actually mentioned about his faith in God. I mean, Joseph himself is a sinner. And if he has faith in God, then he knows that he has been forgiven by God. Those who know they've been forgiven by God know that they must forgive. This past Wednesday morning, the the brothers and I who gathered on Wednesday mornings at 6.30 uh, to read the Bible and drink coffee together, because you need that at that hour, uh, we were reading Matthew chapter 6 together. And just after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What Jesus is saying is is this. Those whom God has forgiven will also forgive. There's no such thing as a Christian, a, a person who's been forgiven, who does not also forgive. In fact, if you refuse to forgive, you may be proving that you've not been forgiven. Do you forgive others? Or do you refuse to forgive? Joseph, he has already forgiven his brothers from the heart. And we see that in his comforting response there in verses 19 to 21. And in this matter of forgiveness, Joseph begins with the all-important theological truth. He is not God. I mean, do you see that in the words of verse 19? Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Do you see what Joseph says? He said, I can't punish you for your sin. Against me? I can't sit in judgment on you for your sin against me. I'm I'm not God. This reality 
that Joseph is not in the place of God is striking because that is where all of the problems for mankind and the world begin or began. You realize that, right? When Adam and Eve ate from the tree in the garden, when they broke the command of God not to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were throwing off God's rule and taking God's place in setting the rules for life in this world. Satan told Eve in Genesis 3, 5 that when she ate of the fruit that she would be like God. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they were attempting to take God's place. They were attempting to take themselves to themselves the authority to decide and judge what's right and wrong. And as uh, one Old Testament scholar, Dale Ralph Davis, pointed out, that's the original sin in the beginning of Genesis, wanting to be in God's place. And isn't it interesting that here at the end of Genesis, that Joseph refuses to take God's place? If Joseph were to refuse to forgive his brothers, he would be carrying out a judgment on his brothers. He would be taking the place of God. Do you realize that when you do not forgive, you are taking the place of God? You're executing a judgment on someone. Do you realize that when you punish your husband or your wife with silence or with shouting, that you are taking the place of God? Do you realize that when you refuse to forgive your spouse or your sibling or your parents or your co-worker or perhaps your fellow church member, that you're taking the place of God? Have you ever thought about the fact that you, sinfully, you might actually want to continue to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart against someone because you're unwilling to give up the sin of taking the place of God? Maybe you like holding guilt over someone's head because maybe you can manipulate something out of them. Maybe you like that power of victimhood, of being sinned against. Maybe you receive pleasure from seeing someone plead and grovel before you, like Joseph's brothers do there in verse 18. We are your servants. Maybe you like hearing someone say, I'll do anything you want. Please just forgive me and make it stop. I don't want this relational war to go on anymore. Friend, the problem is that you're taking God's place. And you need to stop taking God's place. Repent and turn away from attempting to steal the sovereign's throne through unforgiveness. You are not God. You need to say with Joseph, I I am not God. I have been forgiven by God and I forgive you. You need to forgive and say, you don't have to pay me back through service. I'm not going to punish you by bringing this up again and reminding you of it. I'm not going to bitterly stew over it in my mind. I'm not going to use this sin against you in the future. God doesn't do that with me and my sin. He doesn't remind me of it over and over again. I'm not going to do that with you. That's a tactic of Satan to remind us of our sin over and over again. And I'm not going to be like the evil one. In order to forgive and live in peace, you must remember your place like Joseph. And like Joseph, you must remember your place in God's larger plan. God is working out something larger than each one of us. That is what Joseph came to understand as we see there in verse 20. You see those words? As as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph already essentially said this back in Genesis 45 verses 4 and 5. There and here, Joseph is saying, yeah, guys, you you sold me. But here's what God was doing. He sent me ahead of you. Psalm 105, verses 16 and 17, tells us that God had summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, and that God sent a man ahead of the people of Israel, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. The brothers, they carried out their evil plan. And God was carrying out his good plan through the brothers. God was ruling over their evil and overruling their evil for his saving purposes. Our great God did this in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ too. In Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, the apostle Peter proclaims that the hands of sinful men, in an evil act, they put Jesus to death. But that this was all part of God's sovereign predetermined and eternally decreed plan to save sinners like you and me. Peter saw what those sinful men meant for evil. And he saw 
that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, God meant for good. In our text, Joseph, he's not pointing to himself saying, I preserved you, I saved you. He's not in the place of God. No, he is saying, God preserved you. God saved you. Now, Joseph has the privilege of hindsight, doesn't he? In in other words, it was only after it was all said and done that Joseph could see how God was weaving the history and the happenings together. That means that in the darkness of being sinned against, you two are going to have to trust that God is up to something and that he will eventually work good from bad. Our God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In the darkness, we have to trust the promises of God. I mean, wasn't that the experience of the disciples facing Jesus' death? They couldn't see the good in Jesus' death until God made it plain by raising Jesus from the dead. You have to believe in the darkness that one day God will bring his purposes to light. You may not see and understand until glory, until your death. But one day God will make all things plain. You have to understand your place is in the midst of the story and not at the end. You have to trust God in the midst of the story. And you have to understand that like Joseph, that perhaps what is going on is bigger than you. Did you notice that in the phrase in verse 20? That many people should be kept alive. What happened wasn't just about Joseph. What happened wasn't just about those 12 brothers. This was about God's larger purposes, his plans, his promises to save the world. What if God has called you to suffer evil and extend forgiveness so that many might be made savingly alive in Jesus Christ? What if God is calling you to play that role in his larger story of the world? Joseph doesn't just promise peace to the brothers. He actually demonstrates peace by providing for his brother's family. See, he goes well beyond assuring them that they have no need to fear. He proves that they have no need to fear. Beloved, purpose to bless those who have sinned against you. Be eager and ready to forgive, knowing that you've been forgiven. Live in peace, knowing God has a purpose in the pain, even of being sinned against. And you might say to me, but you don't know what I've been through or what I'm going through. And you're right, I don't. But I do know that you're not in the place of God. You might say, but you don't know the depth of my pain. You're right, I I don't. But I do know that Joseph went down into a pit and a prison and by God's grace was able to forgive his brothers. What is more, I know that Jesus was betrayed and sold and stripped naked and crucified. I know that from that cruel cross and from the lips of our Lord, he cried, Father, forgive them. You will only be able to forgive others by drawing from the well of God's forgiveness of your own sins. Charles Spurgeon once said, eyes that have wept over our own sin will always be most ready to weep over the sins of others. If you have judged yourself with candor, You will not judge others with severity. You will be more ready to pity than to condemn. More anxious to hide a multitude of sins than to punish a single sinner. Friend, do you live in peace with others? Do you live in peace with God? Do you know that until you give yourself up to God and His Son, entrusting your whole life to Him, you're actually at war with God? And that you need peace with God? Friend, God made you in his image. He made you to live for him, to love him, to serve him. But all of us, like Adam and Eve, like every other human except the Lord Jesus Christ who's lived and walked in this world, we've all sinned against God, rebelled against him, tried to take his place and sit on his throne. That's what sin is. And our sins against the eternal God deserve an eternal punishment, an infinite 
and eternal punishment because they are against an infinite and eternal God. We need to be saved and rescued from that hell, facing God's just wrath forever against our sins. And God has accomplished salvation in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's accomplished peace because He sent His Son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man. And Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness. He was perfectly obedient to God the Father. He always lived in humble service to God the Father. And Jesus, in obedience to His Father, died on the cross, bearing our judgment. He bore our sin in His body on the tree. And He suffered the eternal wrath of God on the cross so that all who would turn from their sins and trust in Him would have peace with God. And three days after His death, God the Father raised the Lord Jesus up from the grave, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And so all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ may follow Him into glory because they have peace with God. Friend, do you have peace with God? Turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And you will be saved. And if you want to think more about what it means to be forgiven by God, pardoned of your sin, and how you can extend forgiveness to others, I'd love to talk to you more about this good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about this morning than this good news. Jacob's death, it did not bury the promises of God. And if Joseph exacted revenge upon his brothers, if Joseph actually put them all to death instead of living at peace with them, then actually the line of the Messiah and the hopes of the salvation of the world would have come to an end. But instead, Joseph trusted the promises of God in life. And that's why he was able to forgive and live in peace with his brothers. But Joseph also trusted God's promises in death. And that's what we see in our third point and in the final verses of the book of Genesis. Follow along as I read Genesis 50, verses 22 to 26. Genesis 50, beginning in verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The heartbeat of this closing scene is that Joseph trusts the promises of God, just like his father Jacob did. That's reflected first in his life in Egypt. See there in verse 23, Joseph, he actually imitates his father Jacob and invites some of his grandchildren to be adopted as his own sons. That's exactly what Jacob did back in Genesis chapter 48. God has been so good and generous to Joseph. And like his father Jacob, Joseph passes on that generosity. It strikes me that like Jacob and Joseph, as the people of God, we should be enfolding more and more people into our lives. Our families, both spiritual and physical, should be expanding and not contracting. Like his father, Joseph also shows his trust in the promises of God by giving a command concerning his bones. Remember Jacob, he wanted to be buried in Canaan. Jacob told his sons that they must carry him and bury him back in Canaan. Well, in verses 24 and 25, we can see that Joseph wanted his bones to be brought back to Canaan. But note carefully what Joseph says there in verse 24. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Do you see the certainty in Joseph's words here? God will visit you. God will bring you up. Do you see how Joseph is trusting the promises of God even on his deathbed? Joseph calls the patriarchs to mind, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, so that everyone knows 
he is pinning his hopes on God and his promises. Joseph may be buried, but God's promises will not be buried with him. Think back for a moment to our scripture reading earlier in the service. In Hebrews chapter 11, we come to that hall of faith that our brother Joab read about. And the writer of the Hebrews, he he starts talking about these saints of old, right? How they trusted in God in mighty ways. Particular points in their lives where they demonstrated great faith in God. And when the writer of the Hebrews, he comes to Joseph's life, he says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now think about it for a minute for the writer of the Hebrews as he's pointing out these various ways people displayed great faith in their life. Why would this, here at the end of Genesis, why would this be the epitome of faith for Joseph? Why would this be the highlight of faith in Joseph's life for the writer of the Hebrews? He wants to make sure that we all catch. I mean, doesn't Joseph have other highlights of faith in his life? I mean, didn't Joseph have those fantastic dreams that he shared with his brothers and parents? And didn't he hold on to those dreams? The promises of God through it all? Yes, he did. I mean, wasn't that a great display of faith? Yes, it was. Didn't Joseph trust God even when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison? Didn't Joseph trust God when he was forgotten in prison by the cupbearer? Didn't Joseph trust God when he stood before Pharaoh and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams? Didn't Joseph trust God when he was making out those plans of, here's how we're going to survive the famine in these seven years of plenty? Didn't Joseph trust God when his brothers begged him for forgiveness? Weren't those times where he displayed great faith in God? Yes, they were. But the reason why the writer of the Hebrews views this as the epitome of faith for Joseph is because faith is the assurance of things not seen. The conviction, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? Joseph trusted that God would bring his people up out of slavery in Egypt. Just as God said back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 16, Joseph wanted his bones to be brought home. Joseph did not see the exodus with his physical eyes. Joseph saw the exodus with his eyes of faith. Joseph knew what God pledged and promised. And Joseph trusted that God would keep his promises. And you need to trust that God's promises for your future will be kept by your faithful God too. I mean, Christian, do you trust the promise of Jesus in Matthew 5, 3, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christian, do you trust this promise from Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you trust Jesus' promise that there's room for you and that he's coming back for you because he loves you? You. Death will not bury Jesus' promises to you. Death couldn't keep Jesus buried. Christian, you may go down to your grave, but God will bring you up. In the the Gospel of Luke, there's a scene of Jesus' transfiguration. And the writer tells us what Jesus was talking about with Moses and Elijah there. He tells us, that he was speaking of his exodus yet to come. Jesus knew that he would get up out of that grave and go into glory. And Christian, you will too. Like his father, Joseph makes the children of Israel swear that they will carry his bones up when God carries them out of Egypt. Joseph wants the children of Israel to trust God's promises like he does. Joseph wants them to trust that even though they will bury his body, God's promises cannot die and neither can they be buried. The book of Genesis ends with these words in verse 26. Read them again. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. As many have observed, the book of Genesis begins with life, and it ends with death. The book of Genesis begins with creation, and it ends with a coffin. The book of Genesis begins in Eden, 
and it ends in Egypt. Is that where God's people stay? That may be where the book of Genesis ends, but that's not where God's story of salvation ends. Because God's promises propel the story along. Joseph's body doesn't stay in Egypt because God kept his promises. God visited Israel and carried his people up out of Egypt. That's what the whole next book of the Bible is about. We have proof that God keeps his promises right here in his word. And do you know what the people of Israel did? They kept their promise to Joseph. They carried his bones up out of Egypt. And after the people of Israel received the land that God promised to give them in the conquest of Canaan, we read these words at the close of the book of Joshua. Joshua 24, verse 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob purchased. Joseph was buried in Canaan because God kept his promises. One day Joseph will get up from the dead in Canaan because God will keep his promises. Jacob may have died and Joseph may have died, but the promises of God remain active and alive. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. You can bury a man, but you can't bury God. Take it on the word of a man who was sealed in the tomb and got up from the grave. Jesus promised you, dear Christian, that he will come and get you. As you look at your death in the future, you must realize that your body will be planted like a seed in the ground. And on the last day, you will spring up from your grave in the full blossom of glory. Your God has promised you that. Death cannot bury God's promises to bring you home. So today, live in peace. And when the day comes, die in hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you hold us in your hands, now and always. Remind us of that when our fears arise. Remind us of that when the storms rage and swell. Remind us that you are the one who rules the waves and that you will bring us to yourself, that you are our everlasting reward. Father, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.